0: We another month.
1: We did. It's the day before election day. Welcome to this week's edition of An Hour of Your Life. My name is Kim.
0: And I am Steve. And we are done with... No, we're not done with Spooky Octopus.
1: Uh, no, this is a good transition episode. But yeah. before we launch into our episode this week, um, and it's going to be a real tight show uh, time-wise, but I did want to talk about... Um, our experience today at the can at I the polls.
0: So, can I say something first? Sure. You know how I know how the time changed? How? Besides looking out the window. Because you're tired? Dark. <laughs> but yeah, besides looking out the window and it was dark at six o'clock. How's that? Because Rupert and Jack, the dogs, oh, yeah. started whining and crying and barking An at hour four early. o'clock because they thought it was time to eat. Apparently, they can't look at the clock until time. can't tell
1: time? hmm so uh, I can't remember if we mentioned it on last the last show or not, but we are, Steve and I are in quarantine um, because we've had some COVID symptoms. So um, we always like, or at least I always like to vote in person on election day. Uh, so we were waiting for election day. Well, we decided to go vote early today. Um, and it was really interesting. It's not, this is going to be a very memorable election, I think. Um, because, we, <clears throat> because we have COVID symptoms, uh, we haven't got our test back, or I haven't got my test back yet.
0: I got mine back. It, I am negative.
1: It was negative, but um, we weren't taking any chances. And so basically, it was a three-hour long line at the Board of Elections. And what they have you do is they, you sit in your car, and somebody who is in line to vote has like a little marker for you. And then when they get up to the front of the line, they um, the poll workers call you, and you pull up curbside, and then they bring your ballot out to you. So the but when the people came out to bring our ballots, they had a mask, a face shield, gloves, and plastic, like pl- covered like a plastic
0: suit. I will tell you one thing. All it the was, people <laughs> who were standing next to our vehicle scooted a long way away when they saw that one.
1: It was like nothing I have ever seen before. It was quite the experience. You know so. what? But good, I appreciate them.
0: Good good for Ohio. Right. And we felt so guilty, they actually told us You know, you can, it's going to be three hours. We have your cell phone number. You can go home. But we really felt guilty about that. Yeah. So we stayed there. Sat in the parking lot for three hours. Like. Like we would have been in line. Yeah, away from everybody else.
1: I mean, granted, uh, we sat in our, well, I say our warm car, but we turned it off and put the windows down. So it was. Yeah. Relatively like standing in line. But anyway, uh, like we said, this is going to be a very, um, I think this is going to be a very tight for time. We're going to go.
0: We're going to go over. Uh, So, but that's okay.
1: Um, So, as Steve mentioned, during the month of October, we've been telling spooky stories, and this year we focused on real people like Houdini and Poe and Vlad the Impaler and the Warrens. So, in this our last spooky October episode, we're going to continue with real people. Now, Houdini, Poe, and the Warrens are spooky because of their professions, and they're spooky for like fun things like ghost stories and stuff like that. And Vlad, uh, you know, Dracula has become a household name. It's spooky, not because of stories, but the Dracula lore is because of him. So kind of a story. And he's scary because of how evil he was in real life. But this, today's episode takes us to a whole different level.
0: Yeah, and today's episode is, it's scary because it's true. And normally Kim and I like to banter back and forth. But this, this one I think needs our... I, respect's not the word, but... Reverence, it's a, almost. Reverence a little bit more solemn yeah. with this one. So we're going to try not to interrupt and, and go through. There will be questions, but we're not yeah. going to... The, the jocularity, I don't think, is going to be in this show because yeah. it's...
1: There's nothing funny about yeah, it. Yeah, there,
0: there's nothing funny about this. It's not like a haunted house. It's scary because it's real-life evil, not something we read about to go get a cheap thrill like watching the Halloween movies or anything like that. Today's episode is about real horror. This is a story about how evil people can be to each other and to other people. Today we're going to tell you about we're, we're going to talk about the Buchenwald concentration camp that was run by the Nazis in World War II.
1: But as evil and horrific as Buchenwald was, we're going to talk about two specific people who were a part of the history of Buchenwald and who were really bad. Um, and evil is the only word I can think of to describe Carl and Ilsa Koch. Yeah.
0: But before we get to the story of the Kochs, we're going to have to talk about Buchenwald, Buchenwald itself to just kind of set the stage. Then we will go and we're going to talk about the camp commandant, Carl, and his wife, Isla.
1: So, uh, you know, in case you haven't already, if you need a trigger warning, consider this your warning. Yeah. Um, now, Buchenwald, which translates to beach forest was a Nazi concentration camp established on Edersburg Hill near Weimar, Germany in July of 1937. It was one of the first and the largest of the concentration camps within Germany in 1937. And among the first prisoners held there were actual or suspected communists. But soon prisoners came from all over Europe and the Soviet Union and they were imprisoned, um, mostly Jews, Poles, and other Slavic people, Uh, the mentally ill and physically disabled political prisoners, Romani people, a.k.a. gypsies, uh, Freemasons. Um, Some actual prisoners of war were kept there. Uh, At Buchenwald, there were also ordinary criminals and what the Nazis called sexual deviants, so essentially homosexuals. All the prisoners were worked primarily as forced slave labor in the local armaments factories. And fi- or 56,545 of the 280,000 prisoners who passed through Buchenwald and its 139 subcamps either died or were executed. And primarily because of insufficient food and poor conditions, as well as deliberate ed- execution. So over 56,500 people.
0: Yeah, The camp also gained notoriety because it was one of the first camps liberated by the United States Third Army in April 1945, Allied Commander Dwight David Eisenhower visited Ordorf, one of Buchenwald's sub-camps, on the 12th of April 1945. About one week after liberation, from August 1945 to March 1950, the camp was used by Soviet occupation authorities as an internment camp called NKVD Special Camp Number Two, where 28 about 28,455 prisoners were held. And of those, 700 seven hundred or 7,113 died. Today the remains of Buchenwald serve as a memorial and a permanent exhibition and a museum. The first subcamps of Buchenwald were established in um, 1941 so that the prisoners could work in nearby SS industries.
1: Now, before we go much further, we're going to be talking about a couple different groups, the SS and the Gestapo. Now, the Gestapo was, sort of, was like a secret police force.
0: Yeah, they really weren't soldiers. They, most of the Gestapo were, in real-life civilian world, mm-hmm. were police. So they were, they were Hitler's secret, the Nazis' secret police that went police, out yeah. and did investigations. And this is kind of roughing it over and glossing over. But yeah. as, as a general rule, that's what they did.
1: Now, the SS was more like the military. It was a lot more elite. Um, You didn't have to be a Nazi party member to work for the Gestapo, but in order to be in the SS, you had to prove your pure Aryan heritage all the way back to 1750.
0: Yeah. So basically, the SS had three sub-branches. One, they were Hitler's bodyguards. Two, they ran the the concentration camps, at least some of the concentration camps. There were Luftstalags that were run by the Air Force that primarily held uh, pilots and stuff like that. And then you had SS, what we'll call them troops, like they were, I don't want to say they were special operations, but they were more elite troops that did that. So basically about three branches of the SS.
1: Now, in 1942, the SS began to use its forced labor supply for armaments production. And because it was more economical to rent out prisoners to private firms, subcamps were set up near factories, which had a demand for prisoner labor. Private firms paid the SS between four and six Reichmarks per day per prisoner, resulting in an estimated 95,758,843 Reichmarks in revenue for the SS between June 1943 and February 1945. Now, for those of you who are wondering, between June 1943, February 1945, that's over $624 million dollars.
0: That's a lot of money. In
1: forced labor. Yeah. There were 136 sub-camps in all, and conditions were worse than at the main camp, with prisoners provided insufficient food and inadequate shelter. It was pretty unusual for the Germans to send Western allied POWs to concentration camps, but Buchenwald did hold a group of 168 aviators for two months. These men were from the United States, the UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and Jamaica. And they all arrived at Buchenwald on August 20th, 1944. All of these airmen were in aircraft that had crashed in occupied France. And there are two explanations for them being sent to a concentration camp. The first one was that they had managed to make contact with the French resistance, and and some of these uh, airmen were disguised as civilians. They were carrying false papers when they were caught, and so then they were therefore categorized by the Germans as spies, and that meant their rights under the Geneva Convention didn't have to be respected. Um, And the second explanation is that they had been categorized as Terrorflieger, which literally translates to terror aviators. They were
0: bombing German cities.
1: Right. Now, the aviators were initially held in Gestapo prisons and headquarters in France, but in April or August 1944, they and other Gestapo prisoners were packed into boxcars and sent to Buchenwald.
0: So this train trip took about five days, during which they received very little, if any, food or water. A primary cause of death was illness due to harsh camp conditions and starvation. Malnourished and suffering from disease, many prisoners were literally worked to death under the Wernichtung durch Arbeit policy, meaning extermination through labor. Prisoners only had the choice between slave labor or an inevitable execution. Many prisoners also died as a result of human experimentation. Many died to arbitrary acts perpetrated by SS guards. Other prisoners were simply murdered, primarily by hanging and shooting them. Walter Gerhard Martin Sommer was an SS Hoppscharfuhrer who served as a guard at the concentration camps at uh, Dachau and Buchenwald. He was known as the hangman of Buchenwald. He was considered as a depraved sadist who reportedly ordered Otto Neuerer and Matthias Spanling to um, take two Austerian priests and have them to be crucified upside down. Sommer was especially infamous for hanging prisoners off trees from the wrist, which had been tied behind their backs, known as the singing in this area was known as the singing forest because of the screams which came from the wooded area there around this prison camp. Summary executions of Soviet POWs were also carried out at Buchenwald.
1: At least a 1,000 Soviet prisoners were selected in 1941-1942 by a task force of three Dresden Gestapo officers and sent to the camp for immediate execution by a gunshot to the back of the neck. The camp was also a site of large-scale trials for vaccines against typhus in 1942 and 1943. A total of 729 inmates were used as test subjects, and 154 of them died. Other experimentation occurred at Buchenwald on a smaller scale. One such experiment was aimed at determining the precise fatal dose of a poison of the alkaloid group, and according to the testimony of one doctor, four Soviet POWs were administered the poison, and when it proved not to be fatal, they were, quote, strangled in the crematorium and subsequently dissected. Among various other experiments was one in which, in order to test the effectiveness of a bomb for wounds from incendiary bombs, Um, and to do these experiments, prisoners had to have very severe white phosphorus burns. And when questioned at trial about this testing, particularly over the fact that the testing was designed in some cases to cause death and only to measure the time which elapsed until death was caused— one Nazi doctor's defense was that although he was a doctor, he was a quote legally appointed executioner.
0: I guess that's how he dealt with it in his own mind. I, 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 I think would some also, people just went on and just yeah. Maybe maybe he had a, a spark of humanity, and that's how he dealt uh, with it. I don't know.
1: I would also like to point out that this is only at Buchenwald. This is one camp that we're talking about yeah. here. Atrocities like this were going on. All over Nazi Europe.
0: The SS kept records of the number of prisoners and people coming to and leaving camp, categorizing those leaving by release, transfer, or death. These accounts are one of the sources of estimates for the number of deaths in Buchenwald. According to the SS documents, 33,462 died. That said, these documents were not, however, necessarily accurate. Among those executed before 1944, many listed as transferred to the Gestapo. Further, from 1941, Soviet POWs were executed in mass killings. Arriving prisoners selected for execution were not entered into the camp, registered and therefore were not among the 33,462 Dead that were listed. So the documents that they kept listing that 33,462 were actually accurate according to those numbers, but it didn't include everyone. That's a
1: low number. That
0: yeah, they they artificially kept the numbers low. One former Buchenwald prisoner, Armin Walter, calculated the number of executions by the number of shootings in the spine at the base of the head. His job at Buchenwald was uh, to set up and care for a radio installation at the facility where people were being executed. He counted the numbers, uh, which arrived by Telex, and he hid the information for all those years. He says that 8,483 Soviet prisoners of war were shot in this manner. Lesson being here, if you're going to commit war crimes, you can't keep it a secret. On April 4, 1945, the United States 89th Infantry Division overran Ordruf, a sub the subcamp of Buchenwald. Buchenwald was uh, partially evacuated by the Germans on, uh, from April 6, 1945, until April 11, 1945. In the days before the arrival of the American Army, thousands of prisoners were forced to join the evacuation marches. Thanks in large, um, in large part to the efforts of, of a Polish engineer who happened to be a shortwave amateur radio operator, his pre-war call sign was SP-2BD. Gwydan Demasian, an inmate since 1941, happened to be in the prison. He had a secret shortwave transmitter and a, and a small generator built and hidden in one of the prisoners' movie rooms. On April 8th at noon, He and uh, Russian prisoner Konstantin Ivanovich Lenov sent a Morse code message prepared by the leaders of the prisoners' underground resistance. And this message went, was said, "To To the Army of General Patton, this is the Buchenwald Concentration Camp, SOS. We request help. They want to evacuate us. The SS wants to destroy us. The text was repeated several times in English, German, and Russian. Uh, Demazin sent um, the English and German transmission where Leonov sent the Russian versions.
1: And about three minutes after the last transmission sent by Demazin, the headquarters of the U.S. Army responded, KZ Boo, hold out, rushing to your aid, staff of 3rd Army. And according to Teofil Vitek, a fellow Polish prisoner who had witnessed the transmissions, Demazen fainted after receiving the message. And after this news had been received, inmates stormed the watchtowers and killed the remaining guards using arms they had been collecting since 1942, which included one machine gun and 91 rifles. And as American forces closed in, Gestapo headquarters at Weimar telephoned the camp administration to announce that it was sending explosives to blow up any evidence of the camp, including its inmates. But the Gestapo didn't know that the administrators had already fled, and a prisoner answered the phone and informed headquarters that explosives would not be needed because the camp had already been blown up, which of course was not true. A detachment of U.S. soldiers under the command of Captain Frederick Keffer arrived at Buchenwald on April 11, 1945, at 3.15 p.m. The clock there is permanently set to 3.15 to commemorate the moment of liberation. The soldiers were given a hero's welcome, with the emaciated survivors somehow finding the strength to toss some liberators into the air in celebration. And the Army sent soldiers to take control of the camp on the morning of Thursday, April 12, 1945.
0: Now, several journalists, journalists arrived on that same day, including Edward R. Murrow, whose radio, radio report of his arrival and reception was broadcast on CBS and became one of his most famous He says, I asked to see one of the barracks. It happened to be occupied by the Checks. When I entered, men crowded around tried to lift me to their shoulders. They were too weak. Many of them could not even get out of bed. I was told that this building had once stabled 80 horses. There were 1,200 men in it, five to a bunk. The stink was beyond all description. They called the doctor. We inspected his records. There were only names in the little black book. Nothing more. Nothing about who these men were, what they had done or hoped. Behind the names of those who had died, there was a cross. I counted them. They totaled 242 out of 1,200 in one month. As we walked out of the courtyard, a man fell dead. Two others, they must have been over 60 years old, were crawling toward the latrine. I saw it, but will not describe it.
1: After General Patton toured the camp, he ordered the mayor of Weimar to bring 1,000 citizens to Buchenwald. These were predominantly to be men of military age from the middle and upper classes. The Germans had to walk 25 kilometers, or the equivalent of 16 miles, round-trip under armed American guard and were shown the crematorium and other evidence of Nazi atrocities. The Americans wanted to ensure that the German people would take responsibility for Nazi crimes instead of dismissing them as atrocity propaganda.
0: General Eisenhower also invited two groups of of Americans to tour the camp in mid-April 1945. Journalists and editors from some of the principal United States publications, and then a dozen members of Congress uh, from both the House and the Senate led by Senate Majority Leader Albin W. Barkley. All toured the camps to get a first-hand account and witness it personally. So between August 1945, after the war, between August 1945 and the 1st of March 1950, Buchenwald, as we mentioned earlier, was a site of NKVD Special Camp Number 2, where the Soviet secret police imprisoned the former Nazis and the anti-communist dissidents. After NKVD camp closed, much of the camp was razed, while signs were erected to provide a Soviet interpretation of the camp's legacy. The first monuments to victims were erected by Buchenwald inmates days after the initial liberation. It was made of wood and only intended to be temporary. A second monument to commemorate the dead was erected in 1958 by the GDR, that would be the East German government, near the mass graves. Inside the camp, there is also a stainless steel monument on the spot where the first temporary monument stood. It's And I think this is really cool. Its surface temperature is maintained at 37 degrees centigrade or 99 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the temperature of human skin, and it's kept that way all year round.
1: Now today, the Buchenwald Concentration Camp serves as a Holocaust memorial. It has a museum with permanent exhibitions about the history of the camp. So that's Buchenwald. I hope we can all agree that it is a terrible place, and the inhumanity that took place there is hard to believe today. I hope memories of Buchenwald do not fade and soften over time. Um, and I, it blows my mind that there are Holocaust deniers in the world. Uh, that's a subject, I guess, for another day. But this happened; it exists. And if you ever have the opportunity to visit a concentration camp, I strongly suggest it. Steve and I have been to Auschwitz, and it was a life-altering experience. So now we are going to move into the story of the coax
0: Yeah, but as you said, some of these people, some of the prisoners, the inmates, are still alive. Now, they're mm-hmm. very elderly, and they're up there. And even if they were a, a five-year-old child at the time, they'd mm-hmm. be in their 80s right now. But I, 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 that's why I think we need to show the respect.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, I also... Uh, not too, you know, fairly recently found out that I have that my paternal grandfather was in a concentration camp, and so it has a special meaning to me. Um, and as the descendant of a concentration camp survivor, I absolutely demand that we show the reverence and respect that these people deserve.
0: So, with all that said, it's time to move on to Carl and Isla Koch and. Well, let, let me just get started here. Karl was born on the 2nd of August, 1897, and died on the 5th of April, 1945. He was a mid-ranking commander in the SS of Nazi Germany, who was, and he happened to be the first commandant of the Nazi concentration camps at Buchenwald and Sachsenhausen. From September 1941 until August 1942, he served as the first commandant of um, Majneck concentration camp, and occupied Poland, stealing vast amounts of valuables and money from murdered Jews. Koch was born in Darmstadt, Germany. His father worked in a local registrar's office and died when Karl was eight years old. After completing elementary school in 1912, Koch attended Mittelschule or middle school and completed a commercial apprenticeship. In 1916, he volunteered to join the German army and fought on the Western Front during World War I until he was captured by the British. Koch spent the rest of World War I as a prisoner of war and was returned to Germany in 1919. As a soldier, he conducted himself well and was awarded the Iron Cross Second Class, the Observer's Badge, and the Womb Badge in black. Following World War One, Koch worked as a commercial manager and um, an authorized signatory and insurance agent but he became unemployed in 1932. I think we should note that uh, he had served a prison sentence in 1930 for embezzlement and forgery. So his character is starting to show, and it's kind of foretelling of him that's eventually going to get him in trouble with the Nazis. In 1931, Koch joined the Nazi Party and the SS. Koch served with several SS units in 1934 he took command of Sachsenburg concentration camp. On the 13th of June 1935, he became commander of the Columbia concentration camp in Berlin, Berlin Tempelhof, and in April 1936, he was assigned to the concentration camp at Esterwegen. Four months later, he was moved to Sachsenhausen, and within a few years, September 1937, he advanced to SS Stadten. Standortenfuhrer or Colonel. On August 1st, 1937, he was given command of the new Buchenwald concentration camp. He remained at Buchenwald until September 1941 when he was transferred to Majdanek concentration camp for POWs near Lublin, Poland. That was
1: interesting to me that he kind of gets shuffled around a lot. Or at least it seems like he does. I don't know if that was typical for commandants um, back, back, you know, in the early days. But it seems like he was at Buchenwald much longer than he was anywhere else.
0: Yeah. But I think that was largely due to an investigation based on allegations of improper conduct at Buchenwald, which included corruption, fraud, embezzlement, drunkenness, sexual offenses, and a murder. Now, remember... He's already spent time in prison for embezzlement. Mm. Even as a Nazi, he wasn't a good person, even you know, to, yeah, the yeah, Na- yeah, to the yeah. Nazi standards. Koch commanded the Maginac camp for only one year. He was relieved from his duties after 86 Soviet POWs escaped Whoa. from the camp in August 1942. Koch was charged with criminal negligence and transferred to Berlin, where he worked at the SS Personnel Main Office as a liaison between the SS and the German post office. Koch's actions of Buchenwald first caught the attention of SS Ober- Obergruppenführer Josias Waldeck in 1941. And glancing over the death list at Buchenwald, Waldeck had stumbled across the name of Walter Kramer, who was a head hospital orderly at Buchenwald. Which, and he, he recognized this name because Kramer had successfully treated him in the past. Waldeck was curious about this. So he investigated the case and found out that Koch, in a position while he was in the position of Camp Commandant, had ordered Kramer and another man, Carl Piax, a hospital attendant, killed as political prisoners. Guess what for? You want to guess?
1: Um, did they get mouthy?
0: No, because they had treated him for syphilis and he feared that it would be discovered Ooh. because that wasn't, scandal wasn't a good thing.
1: Yeah, and he killed or the wrong guy. Yeah,
0: and it just so happened that Waldeck was just glancing over this list. I mean, what are, what are the chances? Yeah. But you know, it happens. By that time, Koch had been transferred to the Maginic uh, concentration camp in Poland, but his wife, Elsa, was still serving at the commandant's house in Buchenwald. An investigation was ordered by of the camp by George Conrad Morgan, who was an SS officer and who was an SS judge in the SS court main office. Throughout the investigation, more of Koch's orders to kill prisoners at the camp were revealed, as well as embezzlement of property stolen from prisoners. A charge of incitement to murder was filed against Koch, and later they added the charges of embezzlement. Other camp officials were also charged, including Koch's wife. Uh, The trial resulted in Koch being sentenced to death for disgracing both himself and the SS. Koch was executed by firing squad on the 5th of April, 1945, one week before the American Allied troops arrived to liberate the camp. Now, Koch first married in 1924, and he had one son. However, this marriage ended in divorce in 1931, due to his infidelity.
1: Stand-up guy.
0: Yeah, he was. On May 25, 1936, Koch again married Elsa, with uh, whom he had a son and two daughters. When Koch was transferred to Buchenwald, Elsa was appointed as the over, or basically the overseer, by the SS, and thus she had an active role, an official role, in the atrocities committed there. She was known for her extreme cruelty towards prisoners. Now, Kim is going to cover Elsa in more detail in a minute. So, let me finish up here about old Carl. Under, Carl's, under Koch's reign at Buchenwald from 1937 to 1941, prisoners were mistreated to a degree that was unusually severe, even by the Nazi standards. A variety of punishments, dangerous work in the camp's quarry, beatings, torture, and starvation— Whippings, death by hanging, were handed out by the SS guards under his command. The living conditions in the camp were horrible. The camp was overcrowded. Prisoners barely existed on starvation rations. Sanitation was primitive. Basically, they had buckets. And when we toured the uh, at, at Birkenau, basically there was like a slit trench in the mm-hmm. middle of the building where yeah. they, they had to use the bathroom. So you can imagine... That disease was rampant, and medical care was virtually non-existent.
1: So now let's talk about his charming wife. Ilse Koch was born on September 22, 1906, and died on September 1, 1967. In 1947, she became one of the first prominent Nazis tried by the U.S. military. After her trial received worldwide media attention, survivor accounts of her actions resulted in other authors describing her abuse of prisoners as sadistic and the image of her as the concentration camp murderess. She has a lot of names. She's known as the Witch of Buchenwald by the inmates because of her cruelty and lasciviousness towards prisoners. In English, she's referred to as the Beast of Buchenwald, the Queen of Buchenwald, the Red Witch of Buchenwald, the Butcher Widow, and more commonly, and my personal favorite, the Bitch of Buchenwald. Um, Koch was born Marguerite Ilse Kohler in Dresden, Germany, the daughter of a former military commander. She was known as a polite and happy child in her elementary school, and at the age of 15, she entered an accountancy school and then later entered employment as a bookkeeping clerk. Now, at the time, the economy of Germany had not yet recovered from defeat in World War I, and so in 1932, she became a member of the Nazi Party, and through some friends in the SA and the SS, she met Carl Otto Koch in 1934. In 1936, she started working as a guard and a secretary at Sachsenhausen, uh, where her fiancé, Carl, was the commandant, and they married that same year. And then in 1937, of course, he was posted to Buchenwald. Now, while at Buchenwald, Ilse Koch allegedly engaged in gruesome experiments. She selected tattooed prisoners and murdered them and skinned them to retrieve the tattooed parts of their bodies. Now, this was allegedly done to help a prison doctor named Eric Wagner in his dissertation on tattooing and criminality. Because
0: that was very much needed. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But that's not what she actually used the skins for. Allegedly, and we'll get into this much more in detail, Ilse Koch made lampshades, purses, and other various uh, accessories out of the human skin of tattooed prisoners.
0: I mean there's no way you can describe it. This woman is sick. In
1: 1940, she built an indoor sports arena which cost over 250,000 Reich marks, which is approximately $62,500, most of which had been seized from inmates. Now in 1941, Carl Otto Koch was transferred to Lublin, but Ilse Koch remained at Buchenwald until August of 1943 when she and her husband were arrested on the orders that Steve talked about earlier. The charges against the Kochs accused them of private enrichment, embezzlement, and the murder of prisoners to prevent them from giving testimony. Ilsa was imprisoned until 1944 when she was acquitted for lack of evidence. She then lived with her surviving family in the town of Ludwigsburg, where she was arrested by U.S. authorities on June 30, 1945.
0: I happen to live in Ludwigsburg it's for a three years. Beautiful place. Sure is.
1: Ilse Koch and 30 other accused were arraigned before the American military court at Dachau in 1947. Prosecuting her was future United States Court of Claims Judge Robert L. Kunzig. She was charged with, quote, participating in a criminal plan for aiding, abetting, and participating in the murders at Buchenwald. She stated in the courtroom that she was eight months pregnant. But on 19 August, 1947, she was sentenced to life imprisonment for a violation of the laws and customs of war. Now, General Lucius D. Clay, then interim military government of the American Zone in Germany, reduced the judgment to four years imprisonment on June 8, 1948. So we went from life to four years.
0: You know, that wasn't so uncommon at the end of the war. A lot of... Um... A, a lot of the nazis and the war criminal sentences were reduced at the end of the war for whatever reason i think we covered that and we touched on it back way back what was it episode eight about um odessa oh yeah and, and we talked about that a little bit and there were there were various reasons why this happened but i th- i think a lot of the i don't know I, I can yeah guess that the common criminals weren't this didn't happen to but Go back and listen to Odessa, and I think we'll cover that in much more detail.
1: Yeah. Now, at at this point, she had served two years of her life, now four-year sentence, on the grounds. um, And General Clay reduced her sentence on the grounds that there was no convincing evidence that she had selected inmates for extermination in order to secure tattooed skins or that she possessed any articles made of human skin. Now, the reduction of the sentence resulted in an understandable uproar when it was made public on September 16, 1948, but Clay stood firm in his decision, maintaining that the leather lampshades were really made out of goat skin. Years later, he said, "'There was absolutely no evidence in the trial transcript other than she was a rather loathsome creature that would support the death sentence. I suppose I received more abuse than that for anything else I did in Germany.' Some reporter had called her the bitch of Buchenwald, had written that she had lampshades made of human skin in her house, and that was introduced in court, where it was absolutely proven that the lampshades were made out of goat skin. In addition to that, her crimes were primarily against the German people. They were not war crimes against American or Allied prisoners. Later, she was tried by a German court for her crimes and sentenced to life imprisonment, but they had clear jurisdiction, and we did not.
0: No, maybe it was because there was a different standard of justice because, you know, with maybe without physically having the lampshades, there was no evidence. And, Mm. you know, maybe, you know, during the war trials, they, they accepted testimony from people, but without, you know, so maybe General Circumstantial
1: evidence was more admissible.
0: Maybe General Clay said, you know, without the physical thing, without the physical lampshades, we can't hold her. There's no physical evidence. So... It could have been just a different standard in in evidence.
1: Okay, but the Buchenwald Memorial Foundation states that for the existence of lampshade from human skin, there are two credible witnesses who made statements under oath. Dr. Gustav Vergerer, Austrian political prisoner, capo of the infirmary, and Josef Ackerman, a political prisoner and secretary of the camp, Dr. Waldemar Hoven. Vergerer explained... One day, at about the same time, 1941, the Camp Commandant Koch and the SS Dr. Mueller appeared at my work command in the infirmary. At that time, a lampshade made of tanned, tattooed human skin was being prepared for Koch. Now, this is Ilsa, not Carl. Koch and Mueller chose among the available tanned, parchment-thin human skins the ones with suitable tattoos for the lampshade. From the conversation between the two, it became clear that the previously chosen motifs had not pleased Ilse Koch. The lampshade was then completed and handed over to Koch. Dr. Hans Mueller, later SS physician in Obersalzburg, was a pathologist in Buchenwald from March 1941 to April 1942, and that time period can be defined more precisely through Ackerman's statement. Ackerman delivered the lamp as he testified in 1950 in court. The lamp foot was made from a human foot and shin bone, and on the shade, one saw tattoos and even nipples. On the occasion of Ilse's birthday party in August 1941, he was tasked by the Camp Dr. Hoven to bring the lamp to the Kochs Villa. This he did. One of the party guests told him later that the presentation of the lamp had been a huge success. The lamp immediately disappeared, After the SS leadership learned about it, and Ilse Koch could not be accused of making the lampshade.
0: Yeah. So, again, it was... And I'm certainly... He said, she said. Yeah, I'm certainly not defending her, but maybe, like I said, without the physical lampshade there, they they couldn't... Maybe just a different justice system and rules of evidence.
1: Yeah. Under the pressure of public opinion, Ilse Koch was rearrested in 1949 and tried before a West German court. The hearing opened on November 27, 1950, before the district court at Augsburg and lasted seven weeks, during which 250 witnesses were heard, including 50 for the defense. Koch collapsed and had to be carried from the court in late December 1950 and again on January 11, 1951. I bet she was faking. Ah, I bet she was. At least four witnesses for the prosecution testified that they had seen her choose tattoo prisoners who were then killed or had seen or been involved in the process of making human skin lampshades from tattooed skin. However, this charge was dropped by the prosecution when they couldn't prove lampshades or any other items were actually made from human skin. On January 15, 1951, the court pronounced its verdict in a 111-page long decision for which Koch was not present in court. It was concluded that the previous trials in 1944 and 1947 were not a bar to proceedings under the principle of double jeopardy because of the 1944 trial, she had only been charged with receiving, and in 1947, she had been accused of crimes against foreigners after September 1st, 1939, not with crimes against humanity, of which Germans and Austrians had been defendants both before and after that date. So there's a lot of semantics in here. Yeah. She was convicted of charges of. I mean, they're, they're going to get her. Oh yeah,
0: they're going to get her. It,
1: yeah, it's like uh, Capone being convicted of yeah. tax evasion or something. The,
0: the, the last thing that you want is a government.
1: Yeah, an entire government going and the after power you. Going
0: yeah. after mm-hmm. you. I mean, the last thing you want to be in the United She's States is see is see the United States of America versus yeah. your name. That's the last thing that you want to yeah. see.
1: She was convicted of charges of incitement to murder, incitement to attempted murder, and incitement to the crime of committing grievous bodily harm, and on January 15, 1951, was sentenced to life imprisonment and permanent forfeiture of civil rights. On May 10, 1950, Ilse Koch was indicted by Dr. Hans Ilkow, chief prosecutor at the Superior Court in Augsburg. On June fifteenth, nineteen 1951, she officially started her life imprisonment sentence. She appealed to have the judgment squashed, but the appeal was dismissed on April twenty second, 1952 by the Federal Court of Justice. She later made several petitions for a pardon, all of which were rejected by the Bavarian Ministry of Justice. She, I wonder
0: if they said, Up, oh, here's another appeal. Yeah, right.
1: She protested her life sentence to no avail to the International Human Rights Commission. Are you kidding me?
0: Apparently they didn't buy it either.
1: Right. Yusuko hung herself at ICOC women's prison on September first, nineteen sixty-seven, at the age of sixty. She suffered from delusions and had become convinced that concentration camp survivors would abuse her in her cell. Now
0: I can only hope
1: all know how I feel about ghosts.
0: I can only hope, even if they were not real ghosts, that her brain what, however it works, yes. tortured her. Agreed. I'm sorry, that sounds really cruel, but I, I, uh, I hope... So
1: is killing people for their skin to make
0: lampshades. Yeah. But You know, un, under our system, cruel and unusual punishment. But I, I'm sorry. I, I don't have a lot of sympathy. If there's anything that I'm very passionate about, it's Nazis and the crimes that were committed here against all these different people. Yeah. And, you know, personally, I kind of hope that She had lots of nightmares.
1: I agree. Now, Carl and Ilse Koch had one son and two daughters. Their son committed suicide after the war because he couldn't live with the shame of the crimes of his parents, according to his note. Another son, I believe his name is pronounced Uwe, it's U-W-E. Uwe was conceived in Ilse's prison cell at Dachau with a fellow German prisoner. He was born in the ICAC prison near Dachau where she was uh, sent to serve her life sentence and he was immediately taken from her. But then at the age of 19, he learned that Ilsa Koch was his mother and began visiting her regularly. And then in 1971, he sought posthumous rehabilitation for his mother. I'm not sure what that means, but it sounds a little ridiculous. Yes.
0: I think he meant that he wanted his mother's name
1: cleared. Yeah. Yue was determined to clear his mother's name after her death in 1967, and through his usage of the press, he used clemency documents from her former lawyer in 1957 and his impression of her based on their relationship in an attempt to rewrite people's attitude toward Koch. Clearly, it hasn't worked. Now, Again,
0: just another appeal. And,
1: right, yeah, it, yeah exactly. She, she has appeared in popular culture. Woody Guthrie wrote Ilse Kolk, a song about her abuses in Buchenwald, her imprisonment and release. It was recorded by the Klasmatics. Uh, she was the inspiration for a series of Nazi exploitation films, such as Ilse, the She-Wolf of the SS, that came out in can, 1975. I wonder if we can find
0: that on Prime or anything.
1: We can look for it. The British label Come Organization released a noise music compilation, Fur Elise Koch, in 1982, featuring bands Nurse with Wound, Consumer Electronics, A Tad Brute, Club Moral, and White House, and others. Ilse Koch's life inspired the movie The Bitch of Buchenwald, directed by Jerry Malin- Malier and narrated by Peter Morgan Jones. The documentary was released in 2009 to detail the life and crimes of Ilse Koch. It includes embezzlement, sadism, and hum- humanity crimes. I can't talk. Um, so that one you might be able to find a little bit. It's more recent. So you might actually have a little bit easier time finding that one. There have been numerous books written, including the limited series The Buchenwald Trilogy, the very first of the series titled The Beasts of Buchenwald, Carl and Ilse Koch, Human skin lampshades and the war crimes trial of the century explored official crimes, accusations, and as well as life outside of the concentration camps for Ilsa and Karl Koch.
0: It would not surprise me if one bit, one bit, if those lampshades are still in existence today. They are, you know, no one's going to put them out for public display, but I would not be surprised one bit if some sort of Nazi sympathizer, Took those lampshades and you know they're they're in an attic they're stored away in a basement and they're there. Uh,
1: uh, yeah, yes and no. I, well, I think so. I can I could see that, but I also could see somebody having destroyed them. You know, somebody close to her destroying them, and I think that if her son ever came across them, that he
0: would probably destroy them. You'd think he'd have enough humanity. That he would look at that and say, you know what. It's true. You would hope that he would look at it and say, you know, I, I had this great impression of my mom, but I can't argue with this. She yeah. was everything they said she was.
1: Yeah, that's true, too. So. I don't know what happened to her daughters. We know that her, her first son killed himself. Um, I don't know what happened to her daughters.
0: I guess so. it would be easier for them. When they married, they changed their names mm-hmm. and yep. just faded off into existence. Yeah. Okay. You know what, though? I think it's important to note that the SS didn't try the cooks for crimes against the prisoners. They were tried for crimes against the Nazis. So mm, yeah, all this yeah. terrible stuff was going on. Now, yeah, they used the prisoners. Sure, they did say prisoners were murdered, but only to the point that the prisoners' possessions and their gold teeth were embezzled by the Kochs, and the cooks kept their money. So... They, yeah. they they threw in oh, they killed these people and stuff like that. Remember but,
1: that Ilsa used over sixty two thousand dollars of stolen money from prisoners to build an indoor arena.
0: Yeah. I kind of got the suspicion that had the Koch not kept the money and they hadn't and they had turned it over to the Nazis, all this would have gone away. And, and yeah. nothing nothing would have ever been said about it. I mean, except during the war crimes. Sure. But I don't think they would have ever been prosecuted by the Nazis. So that, that's yeah. really, really, it's it's hard to imagine today how evil the Nazi regime was. And that's why, you know, okay, I'm going to get on my soapbox here. It, this is when people today, say on Facebook, get so dramatic and they start calling people from either party. I don't care if you're calling a Democrat or Republican a Nazi, I really get upset over this because there is no comparison to what actual Nazis did. I mean, okay, so like if Trump or if Obama really, you know, started putting, putting political prisoners a- against a, a trench and shooting them in the back, you know, shooting 5,000 people in the back of the head— Okay, maybe then we can start calling them or comparing them to Nazis, but, but that that's just not happening. And it however, really just you upsets me.
1: Feel about what's going on at the border? We haven't received reports that Melania Trump has been skinning people to make lampshades. Yeah,
0: and so and again, that's not a political statement on either side. That's just against right the, the drama queens that yeah. are out there trying to. Oh, make, I completely agree. Yeah, it's okay. So, and I, when, when people start doing that it just invalidates any argument that they're trying to make and i just immediately dismiss it i can only think like i said they're just dramatic little drama queens that don't have a true understanding of history and what this really means frankly in in all honesty it really it ticks me off yeah, like i, I said can tell. It, yeah
1: and i would encourage you know like i said not everybody has you know we are very fortunate with you being retired military that we are able to fly you know Pretty much free. for free as cargo on a military aircraft, um, if there's space available for us. So we are able to visit Europe relatively inexpensively and easily. I realize that not everybody is that fortunate, but if you have the means to travel to Poland, to Germany, to you know any of the places that there, Austria, to any of the places that there were concentration camps, I would encourage you to go. If you are not able to, one of the most impactful conversations of my life when I was in sixth grade, we were assigned um, our teacher, Mrs. Judy Egemeyer, one of my favorite teachers ever, um, had developed a, uh, with Temple Beth Israel, which is the local Dayton temple, Jewish temple, she developed a relationship with them and they had several Holocaust survivors that attended the temple there. Uh, the synagogue, and she assigned each of the students a Holocaust survivor, and we had to interview them. And that was one of that was another life changing experience for me. Like you mentioned earlier, Steve, there are not a lot of them left, but their children are around, um, and the Jewish tradition um, is an oral tradition. It's a storytelling tradition, and so I would encourage you to go to your local synagogue ask around. I would not be surprised in the least if you would find somebody with first or secondhand experience with the Holocaust who would be more than happy to talk with you. And hopefully then maybe you can get a deeper understanding of just why it is something that you should be so passionate about.
0: Yeah. And even if you don't, these stories are so well, this history is so well documented. Mm -hmm. So even if you can't make it to Europe, to Germany, to Poland, to, to visit these places firsthand.
1: Even you, go to the Holocaust Museum in D.C. Yeah,
0: or you can, you can just go to Google and you can mm-hmm. see the pictures. And like I said, I think that's why it was so important. I think that's why General Eisenhower had such foresight to bring in so many witnesses to, to see this firsthand. So, you know, like... Like the flat earthers, if I can't see it for myself, it can't be true. And mm-hmm. so I think they did everything they possibly could to document this so that it couldn't be denied at some point. But here, here we are this many years later and people are, are denying it and say it didn't happen.
1: If you're local and you have any ties to Wright State at all, I know for a fact because I've checked them out that the Wright State University Library has um, first person footage of the liberations of the. I mean, it's not obviously, you know, it's re, re, you know, like it's not.
0: It's copies. Right. Yes. Yeah. That's what I'm
1: trying to say. Um, copies of the first person footage that you can check out. Um, it is like it's not a documentary or anything. It is just exactly what the troops filmed. So if you're local and you have ties to Wright State, um, I would encourage you to go up and check it out.
0: Yeah. And all this stuff you can find online. hmm Yeah. So let me let me slowly climb down <sighs> off my soapbox. So this was a tough one. Yeah. It's, I'm just very passionate about this. And um, Same. Yeah. Anyway, this pretty much wraps up October. Next week. We have a. Uh, we're going to interview somebody. I'm which, excited for uh, next yeah, next week's yeah, episode. No spoiler alerts, but it's 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 going to be a very interesting story. So this week or during the whole month of October, we've covered spooky and creepy to pure true evil. And I think the absolutely, the, the true That's stuff.
1: the most terrifying horror that you can come up against is stuff that you know. It's true. Ilsa and Carl Koch, stuff that is recent. In recent memory, there are still people alive who remember having this happen to them. Um, you know, Dracula, Vlad the Impaler was was a true story as well, but, you know, that's so far removed that he's achieved legend status now. But the Kochs are within our lifetimes.
0: Yeah. And hopefully, the the difference between the people that Vlad killed, which... We can't take any of it. That was horrific too. Right. But hopefully, with what happened during World War II with the Nazis, that this is going to be much more documented mm. and preserved, so that it will survive the test of time and the test of history. So people can always look back and say, "This, this really happened."
1: It's like because that. It, it's hard to, It's hard to
0: go back and look at flat because there's no documentation. Right. Those
1: really. who don't learn from history are condemned to repeat it, and the Nazis are one of the most horrific regimes that should never ever even come close to being repeated.
0: So tomorrow's election day in the United States. Yep. Yep. Because this is Monday night and
1: we are not going to have a, a new president tomorrow night.
0: No, there, there will not or, be a new president. tomorrow Yeah. Night. Or
1: a, a repeated president. I mean, there's not going to be any change in anything tomorrow night.
0: Yeah. I think it's going to take a while for uh, all the ballots to who get counted and
1: well. What were you telling me earlier that um, some states can't even begin counting their ballots for absent? Is it absentee voting? I, I
0: think all states can do that. I don't think they're allowed to open any ballots until. And I could be wrong, but it's just the states that I've read are not even allowed to open up their ballots until election day.
1: Right. So like the, ours can't be can't opened start, until tomorrow.
0: Yeah, and you certainly can't start releasing the information because that could sure could sway. People's right. opinions and people's votes and stuff like that. So tomorrow night, we will be sitting glued to the TV. For watching, no good reason. <laughs> watching just, I don't want to say it because it is important, but it it, it happens once every four <sighs> years.
1: Can I get on my soapbox for a half a second? I've heard so many people say this is the most important election in our lifetimes. That was la- the last election was the most important election in our lifetimes. The one before that was the most important election in our lifetimes. They're all important. Can we agree on that and stop saying it's the most important election in our lifetimes?
0: It's, it's like I said. There's so much with Facebook and all the platforms. Mm-hmm. People are are free to write, which is a good thing. Yeah. You're free to write. but I'm also the, the, free the, to get the, annoyed with your the, the, over-exuberance. The, the drama is... Runs high. Yeah.
1: Regardless of how you vote tomorrow, though, I would like to encourage you to vote with your head and not with your heart. Make sure that you are voting, um, that you have done what, Steve?
0: Done your research and educated yourself.
1: Yeah. And don't vote based on your feelings. Vote based on what you know to be true.
0: Yeah. So, anyway, and we're not trying to. Uh, No way we're trying to downplay the election.
1: No, it is very important. It
0: it is very important. And
1: the fact that we stood in line—well, we didn't stand in line. Somebody stood in line for us for three hours today.
0: No one stood in line for us.
1: Someone stood in line on our behalf for three hours today.
0: someone held a marker— because they didn't want us standing out there in the crowd. We stood there and we My waited. point
1: is it took three hours to vote today. That's where I'm getting at for this. Okay. So that's, I, I actually, am, I'm really proud of uh, my fellow citizens that it's so important to them that they're willing to take three whole hours out of their day to go do their civic civic duty.
0: Yep. All right. So how do you get hold of us?
1: There's lots of ways to get a hold of us. you can find us on the Twitter at a lost hour you can find us on the instagram at an hour of your life you can find us on the Facebook at an hour of your life or you can write to us on the gmail at alosthour at gmail.com
0: and if you really want to be interested in something. Go back and listen to the Odessa mm-hmm. episode. I think we, that was episode eight. And uh, the time just changed. Uh, so see how I feel about that. Episode no, 12. Episode 12. Uh, yeah.
1: Spoiler yeah. alert. We Spo- hate it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Just keep it on summertime all the time. Right. Everyone's happy. Ugh. All right. Anyway.
1: Thank help you. Help us out.
0: Help us out. Leave us a good review. We're on all the major platforms. Obviously, you're listening to us on something. Tell a friend. Share. Let them know that, hey... I found the most amazing podcast the there best. ever was, mm. and Stephen and Kim. If you write to him, we'll write back
1: and probably send you a sticker if you really if you send us your address. Yeah, we
0: we will do that.
1: Um, also, I wanted to say thank you to everybody that has written um, and wished us well in our quarantine situation. We're both feeling much better. My throat is a little sore because I've been talking for an hour, um, but we are both feeling much better, and I have been cleared by the doctor to go back to work on Friday. Yay! So. Thank you for everyone who has inquired after us.
0: All right, Kim. So, from our studio, and notice I turned the light, I remember to turn the light on. Oh, good job. Yeah. So, from our studios in Little Sugar Creek Township, thanks for
1: spending an hour of your life with us. Sources this week include Wikipedia, Britannica, Quora, Find a Grave, Jewish Virtual Library, National World War II Museum, and extracts from Edward Armorow's Buchenwald Report published on April 15, 1945.